It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who understand that my health and your health rely on each other when it comes to infectious diseases. Yeah, it seems like that's such a simple concept, but... It's novel. Sometimes it's not as obvious to some as it should be. My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here at Blank Jones Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And we are really excited about this episode. It's the episode I know the two of us have been waiting for. Mm-hmm. This is really the Avengers Endgame of uh, Vax Talk episodes. Everything's <laughs> been leading up to this. Because we get to talk to Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> now, yes, if you, and I've been excited. <laughs> if you don't know who Chelsea Clinton is, then you live under a rock. But if you do live under a rock... Congratulations okay. on getting this podcast. Vax Talk is the podcast for people who live under rocks, too. That's fine. Absolutely. Also, like, you probably aren't at risk for infectious diseases because you live under a rock. But mm. Chelsea Clinton is the daughter of former President Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. And she has sort of a wonderful career of her own in global health. And so we're excited to talk to her about that. And you'll learn all about her when that comes around. But first, we want to do just a brief around the web. Mm -hmm. And so I will toss it to my friend Nathan, who maybe has something to talk about. Yeah, I just wanted to have a quick discussion on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Because this podcast was, uh, we're recording, it's been not too long since uh, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which is the one-shot uh, vaccine that's not the not mRNA based uh, vaccine um, and only has one dose as opposed to two from the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines uh, was recently kind of put on hold for distribution in the United States due to, if I remember correctly, six reports of a certain kind of blood clot um, that can be particularly tricky in terms of how it is treated and particularly dangerous. These are reports, so it's worth talking about a few layers to this. So there's been seven-ish million doses of this vaccine uh, given, I believe, uh, and we've had those kind of six reports out of those seven. Um, these were not anything that was shown to be statistically different in the trials, but that's why we have all this uh post-distribution monitoring so we can look for very rare events such as this. And at this point, A, we have not established a causal link to these. Um, and B, we haven't, it, clearly, even if there is a causal link, that risk appears to be very low. So the reason for pulling this at this point and, and allowing the ACIP and other groups, the FDA and whatnot, to have the time to review the evidence to get more information is to figure out going forward what the best strategy is for this vaccine. Because if there are other vaccines that don't have this risk, maybe there are certain populations in which they want to make a preferential recommendation for other brands, whereas there may be, for for most people, it may be 
still very low risk and doesn't matter. And in fact, it, there may not be a causal association at all. It's worth pointing out that the, the blood clots, this particular kind of blood clot, were in a certain age range of women in particular uh, that these reports had come from. So still a very low risk in terms of those reports and the chance of anything happen happening, even if it's actually causally related. So I do want to reassure people that if you got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, um, you are still fine. There, the chance of anything bad happening is still nearly zero. Yeah, your chances, <laughs> you, you have twice, twice the odds of mm-hmm. becoming an Olympian than you do of getting this kind of blood clot. Right. And the kinds of things to look out for when it comes to blood clots in general are if there were would be you know pain in a particular location that was intense if you're having um, any kind of like a mental status change or anything those would be reasons you would be going to the doctor anyway so yes watch your overall health for the next two weeks following the vaccine but the chance of actually developing a serious problem is extremely low and we know that covid causes blood clots and it causes them at a much higher rate um so um even you know if you got this vaccine still know that you've reduced your risk of a bad thing happening by a tremendous amount by getting immunized and we'll wait until this data comes in and then figure out uh, how to go forward with how the distribution of the johnson johnson vaccine is going to go in the meantime there's still two other very good vaccines fantastic vaccines that are licensed in the united states they outnumber in terms of amount of vaccine the johnson johnson vaccine anyway by a lot so and i think certainly in iowa and hopefully around the country, we're starting to get to that point where vaccines are no longer, COVID vaccines are no longer the the tickle me Elmo uh, that they used to be. You can get it. Like you might need to get on and just pay attention and get on as soon as they start offering or something, but it's not going to quite be, you know, the competition to win the CDs off the radio uh, show that I used to try to like competitively do on the phone when I was a teen. You can you can get a vaccine at this point with a little bit of effort. Now, that's not true for everybody. Everybody has, there's obviously equity issues. So if you can help somebody who's having trouble getting the vaccine, uh, get the vaccine, please be a helper and do that. Hey, hey, Nathan. Yeah. I have a question about um, this pause uh, with mm-hmm. the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Did Did the ACIP throw away this shot? <laughs> Well, they did not throw away their shot. I do not. I do not think there was any throwing away involved. Okay, that's 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 good. I just needed to clear. I think distinctly, it was quoted that they are not throwing away their shot. I'm I'm sure I heard that in the ACIP, either in the ACIP or this um, um, soundtrack I was listening to. I can't remember which. (laughs) This soundtrack. I did a lot of research. I was listening to them both at the same time, so now I'm getting confused. That's actually a good idea to listen yeah. to Broadway musicals along with ACIP meetings. Do you think that they could have ACIP meeting when they're doing the discussion and like when it's like, okay, Dale Bigtree gets the mic again and somebody's like, hold up. And then they start playing like the rap battle music. And then we <laughs> get somebody who can like, okay, you can, you can talk again, but you're going to have to phrase your response in the form of a rap battle. I think that would, uh, play into Dell's ego far too much. <laughs> I, I'd still like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what he can do on the mic. I mean, 
you you talk to ACIP, see what you can okay. get to have happen. Okay. I just wanted to add one thing because I did a whole bunch of research trying to figure out in you know my non-science sphere if I could understand these reactions. And I think it's really important to notice note. I think it's really important to note that these are blood clots that happen in the veins that drain blood from the brain. And so you would probably get a pretty bad headache. And Mm -hmm. in addition to that, it's not just the blood clot, but it's also a low platelet clot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Kevin. It's not just the blood clot, but also a low platelet count. Uh, along with it so you can't just treat it with heparin yeah that's the tricky part of it is that it's not treated the way that a lot of blood clots are so it is something that uh, doctors in particular have to watch out for if they're thinking about it to not you know to to make sure that you're going down the right pathway of treatment exactly so it's not that the ACIP says this is super dangerous let's Mm -hmm. stop but more we need to make sure we're all on the same page right now and that this is a thing that is real and under what circumstances and what can we know about this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would agree with your assessment that they didn't throw away their shot. (laughs) My around the web is a little different. I want to talk about the disinformation dozen. Mm -hmm. If you go to antivaxwatch.org, and I'll put that in the show notes. I'm doing it right now. Good. You'll see that there are, is something called the Disinformation Dozen. These are 12 people who are responsible for 65% of the disinformation about vaccines spread via social media. And so there's a campaign on through this anti-vax watch to get these folks deplatformed so that they can no longer spread disinformation on social media. And it's been somewhat successful. Some of them have actually lost their channels. I think Rashid Buttar, for example, isn't anywhere on social media anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty fantastic. Other than like Gab, right? Gab right. and Parlor, uh, which is sort of such a strange place to be in. Uh, interesting side note on this. I got actually kind of, uh, the only way I can explain it is I got kind of caught up in this like dragnet for the disinformation dozen because I wanted to change the name of our childhood immunization coalition in Minnesota from uh-huh. the Minnesota Childhood Immunization Coalition to Immunize Minnesota to sort of highlight lifespan, lifespan uh-huh. vaccination. Um, and Facebook wouldn't let me do it. Like I went out, I bought the domain names, I like set everything else up, and I was like, "Oh, I should change our Facebook page name." And Facebook was like, "No, you can't do that. You can't immunize Minnesota. What are you trying to pull here, you?" And I tried like all the different permutations of it I could get, and finally I was like, "You know what? Fine. Like, would you take the Fred Jenkins Motor Company?" And Facebook was like, "Yep, that's what you are now." So, (laughs) I did see some of this. I didn't know exactly how it went down. That's how it happened. (laughs) How long ago is this now? 
It's actually long enough that I need to probably try it again. I think it was like two or three weeks ago, but it was like, okay, fine. We are the Fred Jenkins Motor Company. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been commenting on uh, Minnesota sites like the Minnesota Department of Health and the Star Tribune as the Fred Jenkins Motor Company. Mm-hmm. And anti-vaxxers will say things like, you probably don't even do stuff about cars. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to make things go viral or make things trend that yeah. just aren't like car guys immunize i was like oh someone's gonna catch on to that nope it's just me that hashtag is me the hashtag fred sent me is just me but i yeah. did wear my the fred jenkins motor so say you company. got a shirt made already in this yep time, huh? mm-hmm. i wore that shirt to get my vaccine so yeah. um which of course impressed nobody because <laughs> it's just so weird but it's interesting because it's like those of us who are doing regular vaccine things with regular information based on science are having now a hard time with the what I can only term the laziness of social media companies not wanting to do the work but just look like they're doing the work and so reformatting these algorithms so that I cannot change an immunization coalition's Uh name on Facebook to immunize Minnesota I don't know it's crazy, but I'm still supporting the deplatforming of the disinformation dozen. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. So if I'm looking at the right screen and who they are, it's interesting to me that Dell Bigtree's not amongst them, though. Is that he's already deplatformed. he's already been deplatformed, yeah. I yeah, he's so. gone. Yeah. And it's funny. If you go to his Highwire website page, nobody mm-hmm. tell Dell this. We don't okay. want this getting back to him. So this is just between okay. you guys and us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very secure. Very secure. Yo, everybody <laughs> got that? We're good? If you, if you go to his high wire page, uh-huh. his only social media that he has listed there are like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And he's only on Twitter anymore. And yeah. he's never really done much on Twitter. Yeah. So uh, Interesting. It's, it's just sort of funny because he's on like those fringy social media sites now. But he's not listing them because I don't know why. I mean, honestly, like he did a huge upgrade to his website when he got deplatformed off of Facebook. Mm-hmm. You would think as part of that, he'd be like, oh, and we're not on Facebook anymore. But so, I, and to be honest with you, when I'm writing my Friday newsletters, I'm not listening to his show anymore. Like I stopped listening to it because it's sort of like he matters sure. a lot less. Yeah. Interesting. Which is why I think at that ACIP meeting, where they were discussing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine when he was talking there. And then he also spoke in front of the Texas legislature. He's trying to position himself as like, Hey, I know about vaccine hesitancy. And if you want to stop vaccine hesitancy, this is what you need to do. It's like, no Dell, what they need to do is like, stop you, mm-hmm. but which they have. So why are you here? <laughs> um, it's just interesting because he's really trying to rebrand himself as something else right now. And I, I suspect he's struggling a little bit. So I think that's why he's not listed there is I think he just matters less. Yeah. And so now we can start saying Del who. That's nice. Yeah. Del who? Who's this guy? I'm sorry. Who is this? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's that's where that's at. Um, I encourage everyone to check out antivaxwatch.org. And look at what they're doing because it's some really interesting stuff that I think will actually make a difference. So did Dell make like a big tree and leave? <laughs> oh gosh. 
<laughs> oh, we're terrible today. We should just stop doing this right now and move to Chelsea Clinton because this Probably is not going to get idea. better. Yeah. <laughs> so when we come back from the break, we are going to talk to Chelsea Clinton, global health uh, expert and good person all around, and also a daughter of a president and a pres- presidential candidate. So uh, we'll be back. We're welcoming Chelsea Clinton, who needs no introduction. I really want to thank you, Chelsea, so much for coming to talk to us here at Vax Talk and for being available and also being just such a great advocate for vaccines. So welcome. Oh, my gosh, Karen. Thank you. It's so great uh, to be, well, I guess, back in virtual space together. Um, and it's so uh, wonderful to uh, virtually meet uh, Dr. Booster. So thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure to meet you, too. Uh, I want to cut to the most important question, which is, have you been able to get your COVID vaccine? And if so, what was your experience and would you recommend it for others? I have gotten my COVID vaccine um, and it was great and easy. uh, And I was vaccinated by a a wonderful nurse here in New York City. um, And it was, you know, maybe 30 minutes of time, like 15 minutes, like getting registered, waiting in line, getting my vaccine. And then um, I had to wait uh, to make sure I didn't have any reaction. And um, I think I uh, read an article in the New Yorker while I was waiting. So it was like, you know, perfect amount of time, um, which I you know used to catch up on a probably a New Yorker admittedly for my bet like 2019, because with uh, three kids and you know, work and school from home. I'm woefully behind in my reading. So it was great and easy. And I I got to read an article. How was your arm afterwards? You know, my arm was, yeah, no, my arm was a little bit sore later that day. um, And then fine the next day, like totally fine. Yeah, easy. (laughs) For anyone. Everyone, everywhere. Amazing. I love, I love that you had such an easy experience. Um, You know, one of the things that people don't realize about you, they know that they know who your mom and dad are, right? There's, there's no need to introduce those folks, but um, they don't realize that you have sort of this really storied, amazing background in international relations and global health and public health, and that you have gotten sort of these amazing degrees from some of the best places in the world and studied it and worked on it for a lot of years. And so I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest and uh, made you so dedicated to global health. So when I was a little girl, um, I, I just have this vivid memory of um, watching Magic Johnson talk about uh, being HIV positive and how um, just full of awe and admiration I was at, at his at his courage, at his uh, commitment to not being um, stigmatized for his HIV status. And it had such a profound effect on me as a, as a kid. And so kind of, I'd always been interested uh, in in health and kind of in what I would now 
you know, call public health, but wouldn't have known from that term back in probably late elementary school. Um, and yet kind of he and his story and his courage really got me interested in, in how we, how we, how we treat and how we, how we talk about, um, patients and, and disease. And so kind of fast forward, um, kind of maintain my interest, especially in the HIV AIDS throughout high school and college, um, wrote my kind of first master's thesis on, um, on the global fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, which at the time was a relatively new institution to try to help the world raise more money um, to deport, excuse me, to deploy in more places, to be able to help uh, prevent more new infections and help treat uh, people who are living with HIV and AIDS. Um, and kind of that still remained the topic of my doctoral work years later when I went back to school. And now I've, I've taught at the Maryland School of Public Health um, for about a decade, you know, through the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Health Access Initiative. Um, we do a lot of work uh, all over the world to try to help uh, people be able to access um, kind of what we believe everyone should have access to, to help um, protect them from getting sick or to help treat them if they are sick. And uh, while that work started in HIV, uh, we now do lots of work in, um, in malaria and tuberculosis and uh, maternal and newborn health and, and so many other areas. So a longer answer probably, Karen, than you wanted, um, but an honest one. A perfect blink answer, actually. That is really just so much amazing work and really speaks to just sort of this um, service aspect that you really seem to have in your bones. Well, I certainly am incredibly um, thankful to my parents well, for so much, but that, you know, really when I was growing up, while my dad was yeah, governor of Arkansas when I was a little kid, and my mom was a lawyer, I knew that she also um, worked with the Legal Defense Fund and, and she gave meaningfully of her time to help represent um, children and mothers who really otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford legal services. And so, you know, I, I grew up understanding, um, yes, of course, public services is hugely important and uh, kind of when, when done right for the right reasons, um, kind of a, the bedrock of service. And yet there are so many other ways uh, to serve uh, kind of through, um, through how we think of our time and how we kind of give of our time and of ourselves. We talk a lot about disinformation when it comes to vaccines on this podcast, and you've certainly had experience with disinformation in multiple realms. Um, have those experiences kind of informed you in terms of how to approach scientific disinformation? And also, I've seen, as I see you on Twitter, how you approach disinformation and the kinds of techniques that you use when you respond, how did you develop that? Because I love watching you respond to disinformation on Twitter. Uh, oh, goodness. Well, you know, Dr. Brewster, I think, so the first part of your question, I think, you know, the honest, simple answer is, is yes. You know, that kind of having grown up with um, people saying things that I knew weren't true about you know, my family or even me as a, as a kid, I think, did help me um, both develop fortitude against that type of, of disinformation to not be kind of uh, beleaguered by it or exhausted by it. Um, I think it also helped me uh, navigate 
through when is it kind of the right answer to ignore it and when actually does it need to be confronted um, and corrected? You know, I have, I, I have just as a kind of immediate reflection back to um, uh, one of my father's presidential debates in 1992, um, when I showed up with a cast on my leg, I had um, fallen in ballet class. And although I kind of got home, I was, I think I was cleaning my room and I kind of, I was like, it was really hurting. And I remember like, I kind of, I tripped and I fell again and I was like, oh God, it really hurts. And then I tried to stand on it again and kind of the, after I'd fallen in ballet class and I'd, you know, fallen awkwardly at home, I was like, this is, this isn't good. I, I need to go to the doctor. And so um, I, you know, I went to the doctor, I had like a fracture, I did a cast. The only reason that matters is like after the debate, you know, on one of the tabloids, there was a story of how I had like thrown myself, like I, one of them was like, I'd thrown myself down. One of them was like, you know, I jumped off the roof, like something totally ludicrous, like to try to gain attention from my parents because they were neglecting me is, you know, on the campaign trail. And I'm thinking like, this is crazy. Like I fell in ballet class in front of like 18 other girls. And then I just like, kind of fell in my room because I probably should have gone to the doctor right after ballet class. And the moral for me is like, when something's really hurting, like go to the doctor immediately, like Dr. Booster, come to see you, not, not like wait like three hours to probably make it worse by the time I did go to the doctor. And then, you know, I had to go see another doctor to get a cast on. So I just remember thinking like, this is bonkers. Like what? Like none of this is true. And if they had remotely cared about the truth, like they could have asked, I would have told them if they felt like they needed to validate it. They could have called Miss Tracy, my ballet teacher at the time. Um, and yet they they didn't, because obviously that wasn't what they were interested in. And while that's kind of a funny story and it is such a ridiculous one, I actually think, um, you know, in some ways perversely, it was an important one for me because it was so, like, it wasn't like, oh, this was misinterpreted. Like it was just a, a lie. Um, and so now fast forward, Dr. Winston, to your question about, you know, how do I think of, you know, engaging um, kind of publicly with the ongoing kind of misinformation and disinformation, you know, about, about me or about like my work. Um, some of it, you know, I just ignore because it's so kind of ugly and nasty and doesn't have a lot of traction. But, you know, when the foundation is accused of like, you know, I don't know, like giving adulterated drugs to people around the world. I'm like, that's just not true. Like, that's not true. Like here are all of our various reports from our um, partner organizations or, you know, when we're engaged in work, you know, with kind of big multilateral organizations, like you can see all of that. We're incredibly transparent. Like you can see all of our, all of our donors, kind of all of our data. Um, and so sometimes it's like very measured and, and maybe almost like, you know, trying to overwhelm and correct the disinformation through the kind of the nuts and bolts of the truth. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, we have to um, kind of diffuse the disinformation with, with humor and kind of with a smile, um, because I think that uh, the, the people or the organizations that are, are pushing it are, are hoping that you'll be cowed. Um, and, and by showing that, that we're not, I think that really hopefully helps kind of deflate um, and, uh, and defang some of the, the disinformation. And I think that those different kind of tactics and tools and different approaches, depending on situation, 
absolutely have relevance, at least for me as someone who cares a lot about kind of public health and science communication for how I think about doing that um, around vaccines or other um, other issues in public health. I, I just love your answer so much. And, you know, one of the things about you is that you're definitely not cowed. And, but in not being cowed, you're also very kind. And there are times when people are like, oh, you're tapping into your inner Chelsea Clinton here, aren't you? Because there's like a known way of tackling this. Um, but it kind of makes me think about other people who have large platforms, you know, other people who work in politics or advocacy or even people who work in Hollywood, like people with really large platforms. It seems that if they are pro-vaccine, um, they don't really have an incentive to speak out as much as if they are, say, um, one of these anti-vaccine celebrities whom I won't name. But I've been told by people that it's hard to get folks with a large platform to speak out just because they don't like the blowback that they get. They don't like all that pushback. It feels really intimidating. They don't want to deal with it. And I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom or advice for folks um, who, you know, beyond COVID-19, because right now it's really easy to be like, hey, go get your COVID-19 vaccine. Everyone's excited. But when we move past this point, we're still going to need people to say, hey, yeah, let's vaccinate against measles, right? Um, what, what sort of advice or what sort of words of wisdom do you have for people who have large platforms to encourage them to speak out a little bit? Well, Karen, we're certainly going to need people to get vaccinated against um, you know, measles and pneumococcus and everything else that you know, we hope children are being vaccinated against kind of regularly. Um, and yet we know, and I'm sure Dr. Woodstra has probably seen this in his own practice, that um, we're going to need parents also to catch their kids up because we know that millions and millions and millions of doses for routine childhood immunizations were, were missed over the last year, you know, often for very good reasons as, as parents were kind of keeping their children, you know, at home, kind of separate, um, safe, distanced. And yet we need kind of, as it's increasingly safe uh, for families to do so, to kind of be coming back into their, their pediatrician's offices or, or to wherever they may be getting their um, children vaccinated against. Um, still the quite serious diseases that are, are lurking around us if we kind of allow herd immunity to break. So I think this is such an important question, Karen, around how do we um, help uh, parents and kids themselves understand kind of why it is so important that we um, get our routine immunizations and that if we miss them, why we need to catch up and kind of you know, make, make those appointments hopefully sooner rather than later. And to your question about like, what would I say to people who um, are worried about the backlash um, from the, unfortunately these days, increasingly large and increasingly emboldened kind of anti-vaccine community, um, I would say first, like, I understand it. Like, I have, like, really thick skin, and I know that when people are attacking me for my, you know, support of vaccines or my support of a woman's right to choose, then I would say that those two um, issues are the issues that seem to provoke uh, the meanest and the ugliest um, personal attacks that I receive online that I, you know, I do understand. It is sometimes exhausting. It's exhausting for me, for me sometimes when I receive just a tsunami of hate that, you know, by talking openly about vaccinating my children, you know, they hope that I know that, you know, I'm really killing them and that, you know, when they die, like that I feel guilty or that, you know, I kill myself because, 
I will be responsible for my children's deaths. Like it's really ugly and it's really awful. And even though I know that's not about me, um, there is something even for me when it's just at such a level where I think like, oh, like it's heavy, it's heavy and it's hard just because that darkness is so intense. Um, and yet I still think it's really important to do partly because the darkness is so intense and partly because I know that I can withstand that. And I do think we have to continue to talk about the importance of vaccines and vaccinations. I think we do have to continue um, to help parents understand that um, measles or whooping cough or pneumonia are not these threats to our kids that only existed a hundred years ago. Like they very much could be threats that could come for our children tomorrow if we don't all continue to vaccinate our kids against these diseases. So, you know, I, I would just say, um, Karen, I understand. And yet I hope that, um, especially parents, although you shouldn't have to be a parent to stand up for vaccinations, but especially parents will just know how critical it is that we continue to speak out for uh, vaccines and vaccinations, to speak out in support of um, you know, doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and others who are vaccinating um, kids, although probably now vaccinating adults against COVID until we have the, um, you know, until we have the, the data to hopefully help the FDA approve uh, vaccines uh, for COVID for kids. Um, that I hope that, that people will continue to speak out or if they haven't yet um, sort of uh, join the chorus of, of speaking out um, in support of vaccines and in support of vaccinators. You've had this history with the recently with the experiencing the darkness of the anti-vaccine movement like that, but you also have fairly good, as far as I can tell, knowledge of the history of the anti-vaccine movement, which I think is, um, impressive in that a lot of people don't necessarily realize the origins of some of these myths and how this all got started. Um, what led you to learn more about the anti-vaccine movement's history and how has that informed your approach today? Well, I think I learned a little bit about, um, I shouldn't say, I think I know I learned a little bit about uh, the history of the anti-vaccine movement when I was uh, pursuing my master's in public health at, at Columbia, you know, it doesn't years ago, more than a dozen years ago now. And, you know, that's kind of in, in, in the course of that throughout different courses, you know, I remember, um, kind of in epidemiology, there was a little bit about kind of the history of the anti-vaccine movement and kind of just, you know, FE 101. Um, I took public health law. There was a little bit about that kind of with the, the, Jack, the Jacobson case, you know, more than a hundred years ago. And then I remember when I was, um, Kind of working on some of my books, kind of about big issues for kids. Um, I just I thought that um, kids might uh, might think it was fun to know how important like other kids have been in the history of kind of science and medicine, including kind of in in variolation and and vaccination. So I remember kind of doing more research there so that I could uh, write and speak um, kind of based in based in real history, kind of for for younger audiences. I don't think though it was really until I first personally candidly encountered like the anti-vaccine movement when I was pregnant with my first child and I would have kind of, you know, this happened on three different occasions where like quite impassioned people would, would come up to me and say, you know, they hoped that I wouldn't, you know, kill my future child by, um, by poisoning them with the vaccine. And I was just so admittedly taken aback because while people have come up to me 
my whole life and said all sorts of things to me about my parents or my family or me or our world. I had never um, had someone come up and say something uh, so emboldened about kind of me as a mother, admittedly, because I hadn't ever been on the precipice of becoming a mother um, before, I think. And so I just, I just realized how, how even more kind of deeply rooted, I think, um, kind of the anti-vaccine uh, movement and sentiments had been than I had understood kind of study as a, as a student and as an author. Um, and so that really kind of propelled me, I think, to learn even more than I otherwise might have done. I, I love that you did some research for your kids' books, um, mostly because, you know, I know how impassioned you are about children, um, which is, you know, one of my great passions, too, is children and children's rights. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed over the course of time is that it used to be that the topic of vaccination was just sort of something everybody agreed on. But over time, it's become more and more partisan. And even right now, you know, there's a real partisan divide as far as whether or not you'll accept a COVID-19 vaccine based on which political party you affiliate with. I'm wondering if you have, well, I mean, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that um, but particularly around, you know, why is this happening? How did, how did we get here and what do we do about it? Okay. And so, yes, I do think those are different questions. Um, and I just have to say how grateful, um, I was to see uh, president and Mrs. Bush in the uh, PSA, including our former um, presidents, absent, um, president and Mrs. Trump, uh, and, I do think it was hugely important um, that President Bush and, and Mrs. Bush kind of were part of that effort and um, in different for now have spoken about um, about being vaccinated and the importance of being vaccinated um, against COVID-19. You know, I, I think that um, you know, there really started to, to be a, a, a greater um, kind of fissure in the Republican Party uh, as relates to science kind of from the mid 1990s onward with kind of the uh, complete kind of effort kind of from uh, interested parties to cloud the understanding and then the acceptance of the science around climate change and to really kind of engender a, a suspicion and this, even a kind of a cynicism, not just a skepticism, but a real cynicism around not just the science of climate change, but also the scientists who were doing and producing and understanding the science of climate change, and then also articulating kind of what we urgently needed to do, even back in the 1990s, to try to kind of prevent the worst effects of climate change. And the reason I, I answered the question that way, Karen, is I do think that once there was a real kind of break in trust of actually like the underlying scientific method and the underlying integrity of like large groups of scientists among a big swath of our population. It just then made it easier to, to build additional kind of distrust on top of that for other um, areas of uh, scientific inquiry and other um, scientists from different disciplines. And I could be wrong about that, but that is sort of my broad hypothesis. And then I think kind of into that, um, when we had 
you know, a, a leader kind of in, in President Trump, who himself historically had been quite uh, distrustful of science, including around uh, climate change, um, was also disinterested, not, not particularly curious about, um, about anything as relates to science or kind of or and including public health. I think that unfortunately he was uh, exactly kind of the wrong person with kind of the wrong leadership characteristics uh, for when we needed someone who very much would have had a kind of the mix of humility to listen to scientists, also the, the confidence needed to make decisions quickly to respond to the urgency, the many urgencies of the kind of COVID-19 um, crisis, who also understood why we need a well-functioning government um, and to invest in the well-functioning um, kind of dimensions of, of that um, as, a, as an important kind of preventive and, and preparatory effort, you know, because we know that, you know, Trump kind of had dismantled so much of our public health uh, infrastructure, including from a global security standpoint. So I just think, unfortunately, you know, he was he was exactly the wrong person with the kind of wrong characteristics uh, and kind of leadership impulses for the crisis that we we faced last year and continue to face this year. And I think that he, as someone who is uh, deeply admired, um, even beloved uh, by so many in the Republican Party, there became this uh, visceral sense of like, well, we're going to listen to him and we're going to follow him instead of we're going to kind of listen to scientists and respond to kind of what the evolving science is telling us about um, risk and risk mitigation and how we should be behaving and what decisions we should be at least thinking about making for our our own health, for our family's health, kind of for our community shared public health. So long rambling answer to say that I think that kind of the, the causes are really there. We see serious antecedents kind of in the 1990s and then going forward kind of accelerated by, um, by Trump. And I think all of that helps explain where we are today, which is that, you know, white Republican men are the most um, kind of vaccine hesitant and kind of least interested of any demographic in our country. And yet I think all of us who understand why it is so important that we kind of get everyone who can be vaccinated, meaning, you know, basically if you're not immunocompromised or you're, you know, once we have kind of the safety and efficacy data, even like not a newborn infant, I think we have to recognize that that's kind of where we are today. And yet, to your question, like, what do we do about it? it has to be such an important imperative because we do need to be kind of really listening to people's concerns and hopefully boldly responding to them and consistently responding to them for however long it takes because we do need to, you know, convince, um, convince even the most hesitant uh, that this is very much in their interest and our shared collective interest uh, for them to make the decision to be vaccinated, hopefully by, you know, again, as friendly a nurse as I was lucky enough to have here in New York City. I've been reading some of the articles on the Clinton Foundation website that are working on trying to address that hesitancy and restoring that confidence. Um, what, tell, tell us a little bit about the Clinton Foundation and how its scope relates to vaccines. And then also what other projects, if any, are you working with, whether it's in the United States or globally for uh, vaccines to combat hesitancy, to increase access and equity, et cetera? So on a global level, through the um, Clinton Health Access Initiative, our kind of global health program, we do a lot of work um, on childhood immunizations around the world, a lot of work uh, with Gavi, kind of the Global uh, Alliance for Vaccine Initiative that has helped now inoculate 
truly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of kids against kind of childhood illnesses, kind of what we would consider with kind of routine immunizations for our kids here in the United States that are historically not routine or expected for too many children around the globe. And so that's work um, that we're incredibly proud of. You know, I work from helping to kind of lower the price of many of the vaccines to help um, expand kind of training for community healthcare workers and for you know, vaccine workers all over the globe. And that's work that we very much had to pause when many of the routine immunization campaigns stopped due to COVID and work that thankfully now is is and has been really restarting. And so on a, on a global level, kind of that's where we have spent a lot of our time. Although certainly on a global level, um, on a personal basis, I've been talking with our fantastic tri leadership as to kind of what should we be doing because we have done such extensive work um, over so many years in so many different settings. What should we be doing, if anything, to really think about what role we could play in trying to help in some ways inoculate parents and, and everyone around kids from vaccine misinformation? Because Vaccine misinformation isn't just a challenge here in the United States, and it's not just a challenge in the wealthier world, although certainly that, I think, has thankfully gotten more coverage and scrutiny and hopefully is really engendering more kind of responses kind of in places where we know vaccine hesitancy has been a, a, a big and a growing challenge in Europe and Australia and elsewhere. But it's, it's, it's really a challenge all over the world because the kind of the information that may start among you know, what are now dubbed kind of the, you know, disinformation dozen here in the United States, the kind of major accounts that generate and then amplify anti-vaccine content, you know, often quickly gets translated into other languages and, and repurposed into multiple social media settings. So it may start, you know, in English on a Facebook post and then may, you know, get translated into two dozen different languages and, and kind of pumped out through, through WhatsApp. Um, or Slack channels. And so we know um, that we at least have to think about kind of what could we do at a global level through the Clinton Health Access Initiative to try to help prepare people to not kind of be vulnerable to vaccine misinformation. And then, you know, here in the United States, we've really tried to work with our pre-existing partners with whom we were doing kind of different types of health work. So our um, partners from religious communities with whom we've done work to try to help uh, destigmatize uh, substance abuse disorders and addiction, to help expand access to overdose antidotes, including Narcan, you know, places where kind of we already know there is like deep trust with their communities, kind of on different kind of health issues, but still like thankfully on health issues, um, to try to really help equip our partners who are already working with so many people, so many families to have conversations about the COVID-19 vaccine, increasingly thinking about kind of with our school-based partners, can we try to help schools with whom we've now worked for a decade or longer on helping kids develop healthy eating habits or healthy exercise habits, or increasingly we've actually work with schools on how to talk to kids about the importance of healthy sleeping habits. You know, can we help educate kids themselves on kind of why, why do they get these vaccines? And to try to have schools be part of those conversations too, so that the conversation with a kid isn't just happening, you know, when they show up for like the doctor's appointment where they kind of get this shot. Um, so trying to really just think about 
how can we be part of hopefully preempting hesitancy and also helping um, kind of decrease hesitancy you know where um, where it does exist. So lots of different lots of different ways we're trying to be part of the solution. You know I love all of that, um, but there is one important thing that I want people to know about, and that's that we might have listeners here who are listening to you thinking, "Gosh, I love this podcast. If only I could hear Chelsea Clinton on more podcasts." Is there by chance an available channel for them to? have their heart's desires met? Oh gosh, Karen, thank you. Yes. Well, I, I feel like I have talked so much about uh, COVID-19 on this podcast for understandable reasons. Um, and I just realized how much COVID content I was consuming um, and how so many of, of my friends and um, people that I know who kind of were interested all of a sudden in public health for the first time because of COVID. And so I launched a new podcast called In Fact. Um, to talk about public health issues, not COVID related, admittedly, but many of which I think do have implications for COVID. So in our first episode, we talked about HIV AIDS and stigma, because we know stigma is already a real challenge in COVID in many different ways, where, where people who have long COVID are worried they're going to be stigmatized for having long COVID. And so kind of there is less of a willingness to to talk about um, their experience, their symptoms, you know, it, people who feel like they're going to be stigmatized if they're getting COVID now, like from people who think like, oh, like, how did you let this happen to you? Um, where we know that stigma is always really deadly and unhelpful in public health. Um, and so, you know, I hope that through talking about where we are today on HIV AIDS, which is still not where we need to be, but thankfully a very different place than where we were you know, three decades ago, hopefully helps us um, not fall into the stigma traps around uh, COVID-19. Um, and then we're just talking about lots of other kind of public health issues too over the next few months. That's amazing. Where can people find that podcast? Well, you can probably Google it, which is what my husband had to do, even though I'd sent him the link um, because he'd forgot I'd sent it to him. And so he told me that he found it through Google and I was like, but <laughs> I sent it to you. I sent it to you also, you could have just asked me, um, but you can also like, I am so proud to be um, kind of with iHeartRadio. That's just been such a fantastic producing partner. So you can certainly find it through iHeartRadio or Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us today. What a great conversation this was. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you, Karen. And thank you, Dr. Boonstra um, for having me on to talk about vaccines. It's something clearly I could talk about a lot. So thanks yes. for giving me the chance to talk about it a little bit today. Thank you to all of you for listening as well. And I hope you get a chance to listen to Chelsea's new podcast. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blankton's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is pedsgeekmd. And you can find me on Facebook and my blog, pedsgeekmd.com. Thank you. Thank you.